Hey there, I'm Rinda Emick, the founder of the nonprofit Presley's Purpose, where we give NICU parents some time away from the hospital to relax and de-stress by pampering them in the salon. I am also the host of Presley's Purpose podcast, where I will interview NICU families to share their journey and their best tips and tricks for surviving the NICU. Please subscribe if you haven't already, so you are the first to get our latest podcast. Hello again, everyone. I'm Rinda Amick, the host of Presley's Purpose podcast, and I so appreciate you taking some time to spend with us today. I've got another friend here who actually, one of my friends and previous podcasters that, ho- that hosted with me, um, Cami, she had sent me this gal's information. So I'm excited to unfold her story and hear some of the things that I don't know about her journey along with you at the same time. So, and then we will, of course, get into some tips. Um, on surviving the NICU and hopefully just be an inspiration to you if you are in that journey right now, or maybe you know somebody who is going through that journey so that you can help them along the way. So I'm going to introduce my friend, Allison Reese. Thank you so much, Allison, for jumping on with me. Go ahead and share just your, who you are, kind of your background and a little bit about your pregnancy. Um, so I'm Allison Reese. I'm 29 right now. I am married to my college sweetheart, Brandon. Um, we met in college and we've been together for almost nine years. Uh, we announced that we were pregnant back in October 2017. Um, we were expecting twins, uh, which to both of us was a huge surprise. It didn't, doesn't run on anybody's side. Um, but we welcomed our twin girls at 30 weeks so we were 10 weeks early on february 25th 2018 i had two little girls sawyer and remington um usually when i tell people that uh, they're like oh twins how was your pregnancy and i absolutely hate that question and (laughs) sometimes i even lie to get out of reliving it um but uh my i guess our 12 week um, appointment that, you know, it was confirmed that we were pregnant, we're expecting twins. I was talked into getting blood work done, which a lot of times, you know, your doctor always offers you to do the blood work just to make sure uh, to check chromosomes and just see if there's anything that you want to be prepared for. Um, initially, I didn't want to do it because I, I didn't care if there was any, you know, not normal stuff. And I'm using that in quotations. Um, about a pregnancy, but um, we decided to do it. I came back that I was a carrier for CF, with, which is cystic fibrosis. Um, so that kind of started the journey of like a high-risk pregnancy. At the time when I was doing my first ultrasounds, my husband was working at a state in Wyoming and North Dakota. So he actually had to race home to get his blood work done because we needed to see if he was a CF carrier as well. So that was like the first time where I kind of like held my breath because I didn't know anything about it. And then the more I learned about it, the more I prayed that my children didn't have it because there were so many things that come with that. Um, Thankfully, my husband isn't a carrier of CF. So I felt like, oh my gosh, our only hurdle that we got over, not an issue. And then we went to our, an 18 week, 18 and 19 week ultrasound. And that is when my whole world kind of shattered. Um, I thought we got over the first hump of, you know, I'm a carrier. He's not, we're fine. 
we learned that twin A, which is my daughter Sawyer, had like a speck on her heart, um, which uh, my family has a history of heart issues as children. Um, so that was concerning. And then we learned about my daughter twin B, Remington. She, her umbilical cord was not accurate. It wasn't in the right spot and she wasn't growing. And this was at our 18, 19 week ultrasound. Uh, right then and there, um, we were referred to Platte River. Um, it's a high risk OBGYN in Denver. And, you know, they said, you know, a lot of things can happen. Like we're just going to send you here to get full ultrasounds to make sure everything's okay. Hey, Allison. Yes. So can I ask you real fast on this? And I know, um, again, I, I always welcome every host to share as much or a little about, about their journey. But when you found out that you were a carrier for CF, now did you, in that moment, were you thinking like, I wish I wouldn't have done this, or I'm so glad that I have this information? Um, at the time, I was just like, I didn't want to know. I no matter what, what my children would are or going to become, I will love them no matter what. And it made me worry so much. It made yeah. me sick. I was working full time at the time for child protection and I would go into meetings and that's all I could think about. Instead of like focusing on the clients in front of me, I was more focused on like what happens if my child has CF. And I dove so into that diagnosis that I over consumed myself with something that they ended up not having. Right. And that's kind of like part of my journey is that we have given, we have been giving di we have been given diagnoses of both of my children that ended up not being right, that I overworked and overwhelmed myself really quickly. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, sorry to interrupt you, but okay. let's go and jump back to where you were, where now you're going to see specialists in Denver. Um, and you can even, if you can elaborate on the umbilical cord a little bit, you're saying yep. it wasn't in the right position or. Yeah. Um, so it was a bellantomus umbilical cord. Uh, we didn't learn that until we went to Denver. Um, th so the ultrasound in Denver, I took off work for like four hours. So my ultrasound ended up being five hours and I kept on asking doctors like, why is this taking so long? Is everything okay? And at the time during the ultrasound, they said, we'll, We'll staff with you afterwards. So I'm sitting in my first ultrasound of five hours because I have two babies. I have twins. So they have to do a full ultrasound of baby A and then a full one of baby B. And when they got to baby B, she took about two and a half hours. So my daughter, Remy, because they didn't know where her umbilical cord was. They didn't know if it was still attached. They didn't know if it was actually onto twin A. They said it was very concerning to them. Um, and what it is, is that, and I'll do it like the way that they best explain to me, if you're like on an island and there's a palm tree, you want that palm tree in the middle of the island because that's, you want the most shade. Well, her umbilical cord wasn't just in the water, but it was in the middle of the water. So her umbilical cord was so small and so misplaced that she wasn't getting the nutrients that she needed. So their concern was that her umbilical cord wasn't giving her anything. And that, that's why she wasn't growing. I'm starting to understand, you know, why you're so hesitant when people ask you about your pregnancy. Um, and you know, it's, it's something obviously that is hard to share. And I think with our podcast, like a lot of this is hard to share, right? But the audience listening, the people that could 
find their way to this show, this could be so incredibly inspiring and helpful for them. So let's keep unfolding your journey. Okay. Um, so basically what was happening to me was very rare. Um, I think one of the doctors told me it was like less than 1% of women who get pregnant experience this. Um, so then they started with all the what ifs that could happen. Um, you know, we could come to a conclusion that my daughter who twin B that was having all the umbilical cord issues wasn't growing. So then we'd have to decide, do we can continue with my pregnancy knowing the fact that she may not make it or do you deliver early or just, you know, what kind of happens? So they wanted to see me every week and this was like mid November. So at this time I was very, I guess, crushed just because I didn't know what was happening. People at work would ask me like, Oh, how's your pregnancy? Cause you're having twins and everyone's exciting for excited for you. Um, one of the things that I did is I didn't tell anybody what I was going through just so I could avoid questions, which I really wish that I would have opened up to some people. Um, so if you're going through a high-risk pregnancy, find your people. You don't have to tell the whole world, but at least find people so you're not so closed down that the whole weight of the world are, are just not on your shoulders, that right. you're able to reach out to someone. So um, each week I had an ultrasound that took about two hours long just to see um, how both of my girls were growing. Um, and I, I felt pretty confident at this point just because I was receiving good news from the doctors. Then came December and I was vacuuming and I felt something very painful happen. And at this time I was like 20 weeks along, maybe 21. And I ended up starting to bleed heavily. And we went to uh, like the maternity ward area to check in because I thought, you know, am I in labor? I, I have no idea what I'm going, what I'm, what's happening. Um, I, later on, I was diagnosed with a chronic abruption. Between 20 and 22 weeks, I was being monitored at home. Um, I would go into Denver once a week, and then I'd go into my local OB-GYN doctor twice a week. So I was going to the doctor three times a week for two weeks, making sure that everything was okay. Um, one night I had a really bad bleed and I was in so much discomfort and pain. We went back to the emergency room and then I was admitted uh, to the hospital for six weeks until I had the girls. Um, I was at Banner Health and I received at 22 weeks, I was transferred to UC Health in Denver. So I live in Greeley. So my husband stayed in Greeley and worked. I went to UC Health in Denver. So I didn't have my main support person with me because he worked in Greeley. So he couldn't be with me at the hospital. If you're like sitting in the hospital and you are, you know, being monitored because you're a high risk pregnancy and you're, the doctors are telling you that you may deliver early. I wish that I would have asked more questions and try to understand a little bit more of what I was going through. At this point, I was so emotional and yeah. I was I was experiencing so much anxiety. I was making myself sick. Um, I wasn't responding to anybody. And it was like the start of my depression. And you can have post, you can have, you can start postpartum depression even before you have your kid. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, and at this time when I was first admitted, nobody knew. Um, 
I spoke to my supervisor privately and he knew what was going on because I was missing so much work. But I was so private that nobody knew that I was being hospitalized and that one of my kids could not make it. Wow. Um, and I did that just because I don't know if I didn't want to like answer everyone's questions or what it was. A lot of people after like my girls came early, they thought I was in the hospital for like five days. A lot of people don't know I was there for six weeks. Wow. Um, during this time I was super upset and I was upset about like the little things, but it's like the things that when you become pregnant, you want to celebrate like a baby shower, maternity pictures. And I was devastated that I think I thought that I wasn't going to ever experience that. Um, I ended up getting maternity pictures. Uh, I have a very supportive sister who said, you know, you won't be able to experience this again. Like you need to do the maternity pictures. So I found a photographer that actually came to the hospital and I had my maternity pictures done at the hospital. And then the very next day I had an emergency C-section for my wow. girls. Oh my goodness. What a blessing. Yeah. Um, the day that my girls were born was actually, um, my sister actually talked me into having a baby shower at the hospital. Um, I lasted 30 minutes. What nobody knows is that the day of the maternity shoot, I knew something was wrong. And I told my husband that I felt different. The night of my uh, going to bed and waking up the day of my baby shower, something was very off. They gave me 30 minutes to go to my baby shower, which I lasted like 15 minutes because I wasn't feeling good. I knew something was wrong. And like, you know, my husband was trying to be upbeat. So he started doing the unwrapping some gifts and showing me everything. And then they came in, they said they, they couldn't find baby B and that we had to do emergency C-section. They were frantic that they couldn't find Remington. I didn't have an epidural uh, because they didn't have time to give me one. So they just put me under. And one of the things I screamed is make sure my kids survive. I don't want to if they're not. Oh. And I just remember screaming it because of everything I was hearing. I didn't know if all three of us were going to come out and if I could pick, I would want them to survive. Um, three hours later, I was able to wake up. And one of the things with a C-section, if you get an epidural, you're kind of blocked that pain for a while. I wasn't able to have an epidural. So when I woke up, I was in an excruciating pain and because I wasn't numb. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it was painful. Um, I woke up to being in the recovery room by myself with a nurse. My first question is, how's my children? And she said, I can't talk to you about that right now. Oh my God. So, you know, going, you know, waking up and not knowing if you have both of your girls surviving. I just remember I probably said horrible things to her because I was, you know, in pain and I wanted to know about my children. And I said, can I talk? Can I see my parents? Like, can I see my husband? I want to know where, like, I'm waking up by myself with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my husband came and, and he said that he was able to hear Sawyer scream and that she is, you know, in the NICU and she's doing really good. She, and he said, you know, I, I've been wait, I was waiting for Remy to be delivered and I, I didn't hear anything. And at that point I asked like, 
where is she? Can I see her? Did she survive? Like I was freaking out. And they said, and my husband at this time didn't see her either. So we were like in the complete dark. Um, mm. Her nurse came and said that she was very sick. Um, I was able to go see my daughter Sawyer. And so we, I was pushed in on a bed to see my daughters. Um, Sawyer had like three nurses working on her, just kind of, you know, getting uh, her breathing under control, just getting her situated in the NICU. And then I look across because they're, they're not in the same room at this point because they have too many machines to fit in the same room. And I look across and there was a storm of doctors and nurses in this other room. And I said, please say that's not Remy's room. And I was terrified and it was. And I think like when you're going through an experience, all your senses are so heightened that I could hear a pin drop and no figure out which doctor was, whose pen it was. I was so preoccupied with what they were saying and all the medical terminology that I was preparing myself for them to say, I'm sorry, we couldn't save her. Um, I was then, I wasn't able to see her. They put me back into uh, my own room that I was at uh, for the six weeks. And they told me that, you know, we'll give you updates. Um, and that was the most miserable time of my life. Yeah, that's, that is the, one of the most challenging, you know, parts of being separated from the babies or baby right away. And the mindset battle that you go through being separated from your baby is so not natural, you know? Yeah. Um, and that I couldn't even see her. I didn't even know what she looked like. You know, I carried her, I talked to her for 30 weeks and I couldn't see her. Um, throughout the night, the nurse called and gave us updates. One of the updates that she did say is we don't know if she will survive the night, which was gut-wrenching. Um, so I was able to go down there and see her when they kind of got her stable enough for me to come see her. I couldn't touch her. Um, at this point I didn't touch either of my daughters. Nobody had other than the doctors and the nurses. And that just kind of threw us into our NICU journey. Like I thought that my high risk pregnancy and complications was challenging. None of that prepared me for the NICU. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that can prepare you for the NICU. You're just kind of thrown into this community that, one, you may never have known about, or two, like you never thought it would happen to you. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, to be honest, I didn't even know that NICU was a thing when I went in. I just, I mean, I just, everybody I knew had babies that were fine and went home and I, I just, it was a world I really didn't know, didn't know anything about. So that's probably the majority of people. I mean, they might've heard somebody have twins early or something like that and, and need oxygen support or little things like that. But, um, you know, a lot of these complicated babies are, are, they're, they're a lot more rare. And so people don't hear about it. They don't know about it. What happens now? Do you get any sort of diagnosis or how are they, how are you dealing with this situation and what does the NICU journey look like? Um, the first month is a blur. 
to me, which I find odd, but I also know what trauma does to you. Um, so when I, when I was, when we found out that Remy is very sick and that she has a lot of battles in front of her, we weren't given any diagnosis. Um, when she was inside, she swallowed a lot of blood. So the first, you know, three weeks, they were still getting blood out of her stomach, out of her lungs. Sawyer, my twin A, she didn't have it as rough as her sister. Um, Sawyer was born at three pounds, 11 ounces. So she was a bigger baby for a preemie. Oh, which, uh-huh. Like that is good. That's a good size for a preemie. Um, Remington was, was two. Yeah. Remy was two pounds, six ounces. So when they were inside, um, Sawyer basically ate everything and left very little for her sister, if you think about it that way. So uh, when it took, so Sawyer was ventilated, she was on a CPAP machine, and then she was on low flow after a month of being in the NICU. Remy was still on a CPAP after a month. Um, she was also vented a lot longer than Sawyer. So what was really challenging for me is I had a baby doing very well. And then I had another baby that was struggling and I didn't know who to be with at the time because I was still in separate rooms. Oh, wow. So, and there's only one of me and my husband, you know, he was there for a week, but I also, we had to have income, you know. I was able to take maternity leave, so I was still getting paid through my job through FMLA. My husband had to go back to work. So during the day, you know, I was very torn. As a twin mom, you're spread very thin, as any mom in the NICU. But when you have two babies, you experience, to me, I experienced two different NICU experiences at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. One where, you know, things were looking really good for her. And then the other, I was just like, I don't know what to do. It got to the point where eventually the machines in each of the girls' rooms faded away and I was able to get them into the same room. And that's when I felt like I had most of my sanity because I didn't feel like I had to pick or I had to choose. Um, one of the things I really want to stress to parents, to moms, to dads, is you got to have nurses that you trust that you can rely on that can make you feel comfortable because when you're not there, you rely on those nurses. I was very lucky and I had two really, three really good primary nurses that I absolutely love and they made my journey a lot easier. And if you don't know what a primary nurse is and you're listening to this, go ask. They were with my girls from day one and they knew everything that I knew and they explained to me everything that was going on. They helped me like critical think about, you know, what should I be asking for if I need clarification? Um, I was very fortunate with the nurses that I had at UC health. Yeah, I could, I could not agree more with finding the primary team that you are comfortable working with, that you truly do trust and that make you feel like they're listening to you. And it's just, it is incredible. I mean, not every nurse is going to be your cup of tea and 
you know, you're not going to be every nurse's cup of tea and you don't need any sort of conflict or negative energy in that room around that baby that's trying to heal and you, the mom trying to heal whatsoever. And I just can't stress that enough that I think primary nursing was truly one of the things that, that did make our NICU journey a little bit easier to handle and having that trust built up to where it was somebody that I could go in and totally vent to <laughs> like the nurse yeah. was somebody where I could go in and, and just lay it all out there, you know, and if it was an issue with a doctor or something, I could express that to her and, and find out, you know, how to use my voice to express that to the doctor or I just, nurses are absolutely incredible, but finding the ones that you truly do trust and um, feel like they're there to really listen to you is so important. I agree with you so much. Um, one of the things I struggled with the most in the NICU during my NICU experience is the rotating doctors. Um, with Remy, she was struggling, and UC Health is like a teaching university, like teaching hospital. So we would have doctors and like student teacher doctors rotate like every three weeks or there's a new new set of doctors on during the weekends and when you have a baby that has a lot of complications you have doctors that have different ideas on how to help your child so to me I would set up a plan like a care plan with this set of doctors and then a new set would come in so I always relied on my primary nurses like we I like this first plan that I spoke to with this doctor last week like this doctor that just came in is great but I want to follow through on what we started last week um which makes me like want to kind of express that you're not there to make friends you're there to advocate for your children mm -hmm. um there's some there's one doctor that wanted to do something with my daughter uh, Remington. Um, she was on a CPAP machine and then she got down to high flow. And then like two days later, she wanted to go to low flow. After two days of just being on high flow and having her stats bounce up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, I was totally against it. Um, I was kind of pushed over a little bit and said like, we need to try this. We don't understand why she's not able to breathe on her own. Like we need to see if she can do this. Um, and during this time, she was getting so many steroids um, that they didn't know what else to do. And I was totally against it, and I didn't want to do it. But I said, I guess we can give it a try. That ended her with my daughter Remington turning gray one day and taking such a major downfall that the next day the conversation was, well, she doesn't belong here. She needs to go to children's. Wow. So... I mean, it's so fast moving on what your child can do in the NICU that you have to like almost be on your tiptoes or getting ready to like go which way direction on, you know, how they're doing. Um, and I truly believe that if we would have given her a little bit more time, we wouldn't have to make that sudden transfer to children's. Yeah, I I'm a huge, huge parent advocate and um, just on every one of my podcasts, I'm sure you will in some way or another hear me mention this, that you have to find your voice as a parent. And the sooner you can become confident with your voice, I think um, not only, I mean, it's no one's to say, you know, that it's going to save a life or not, but I absolutely do think that 
there are things as moms that we intuitively know that doctors will never. And I think that we, um, we need to be able to express that voice and be confident with that voice. So I appreciate you saying that and being open to sharing because it's hard. Like people get intimidated by the, the staff and the doctors and the decades of, you know, research and medical education that they have. And it's hard for people to really speak up and say, no, I'm not comfortable with this or let's wait a day or let's just, you know, can we try one medication instead of four at this time, you know? And it's hard for parents to really speak their mind on that, but it's so important. Yeah. And what you need to understand as a mom, as a dad, is that you're an expert on your child. They are not. They're the expert of their degree of being a doctor of medications. But at the end of the day, you know your children the best. You've been there every single day. You've been there through it all. So you have to not be afraid to ask questions, speak up, say when you don't feel comfortable. And one thing that I didn't learn about until my third month in the NICU was about a care conference. Mm. So sometimes it's looking back, I was, I was so frustrated about all the things that I didn't know that were available to me. And I don't know how that skipped a loop. Yeah. I had care. so many care conferences. So I'm like, oh my goodness. It's something that I just, I guess, overlooked too, because we had so many, we had a very unique, uh, complicated diagnosis. And so for us, we had multiple care conferences and I've never really thought of it from that perspective, Allison. Like maybe people don't even know about care conferences because maybe they have you know, preemies or something. And they're kind of just going along with the motions of taking care of a preemie. And so that's, that's huge. It really is huge to have those care conferences and to ask for them if you need them. Like if you're not understanding or if you're feeling frustrated, there are so many resources for you. Uh, And I guess I don't even know who to be mad at, who didn't tell me about a care conference. I don't know if I'm mad at myself. Maybe like I, someone mentioned it to me before, but you're in the NICU and your experience experiencing all these things and then it's just like I could have had what how long ago um we ended up having a care conference that kind of jump-started our conversation of getting my daughter Remington over to children's um and this was also to back up a little bit in the mix of all these issues with my daughter um in all of her breathing, she has, she has chronic lung disease, which a lot of preemies do have. Um, what was in the talks for her was having a trach, was having a G-tube, was all these, you know, things to make sure that she's surviving and thriving and UC Health couldn't do that. And also on the other hand, I had a doctor talk about how my daughter Sawyer might have to have heart surgery because there's something, the rhythm of her heartbeat is off. So I was having so many things happen that it was overwhelming that I started to shut down. Um, I am a mom that struggled with a postpartum depression, which I don't talk about a lot to people. A lot of people who maybe listen to this will be like, oh, I never knew you had that. I'm a very closed off person. Um, but that's also one of the things I wanted to touch about is like parents that are struggling with not focusing on themselves. Um, The whole time when I was in the NICU, it was about uh, my daughters and what they're doing. I hardly ever had anybody say, well, how are you doing as mom? Um, So it's one of the things that I want you guys to really think about is like, 
you have to, to be able to care for your children, you have to care for yourself first. Amen. So, and that's one of the things I struggled with during this whole thing, because I had so many things going on with both girls that I could talk about for like six hours and not even cover it all. (laughs) I know. What are the doctors like thinking that that's going on at this time? So at this time, she was three months old and most three months old should be able to function on low flow. Um, and that was like what they were thinking just for her. If you're in the NICU and you have a three-month-old right now on high flow, like everybody's children are very different. What they thought for Remy because of Sawyer, because they compared the girls, um, is that Sawyer was on low flow, so they figured that Remy needed to be on it as well. So they compared a lot. Um, Remy never was able to get on lower oxygen. She was vented a lot longer. She was on the CPAP machine a lot longer. She was on high flow up to five liters. Um, so basically she was on CPAP, but on a, on a cannula. Um, and they, it was getting to the point where it was dangerous for her to eat. Um, so there was like a mixture of, we don't know why she can't breathe on her own. Mm. And it was, they said that there could, there's a lot of tests that can be done to see if there's some blockage in her lungs or what's going on, but children's hospital can only do that. UC Health couldn't. Um, so it was like she needed higher care that UC Health could give. Um, and that kind of started the discussion of like, well, when do we move her over? Because it wasn't like an emergent issue. Like she didn't have to be over there right then and there because she was stable. So I, they wanted to plan it out for me. So what happened with Remy is that we had to stop all bottle feeds and she was just tube fed and she had increased oxygen need. And they said, you know, we will wait until your daughter Sawyer's discharged for Remy to go over to children's. At this time, my daughter Sawyer was not anywhere near being discharged. She probably, she still probably needed two weeks. So they said, you know, we'll just help grow Remy here. And so you don't have two babies in two different hospitals. That's when that care conference came in because I was internally struggling with, am I withholding care that my daughter Remy needs because I don't want Sawyer and Remy to be in different hospitals? Oh, yeah. And for them to give me that choice I was just like, well, no matter what, I'm picking a shitty choice. (laughs) Um, So we ended up, uh, I ended up feeling really guilty. And I said, I can't not care for, like, I need my daughter to have the higher level of care. Like, we want the transfer to children's as soon as possible. The next day she was transferred. And this is when I kicked myself in the butt. Children's didn't run any tests for three weeks. They let her sit there and grow. So this is great. I know it's hard. Your situation is hard to go through, but this is powerful for you to express to our audience because these are things that you could be thinking about and asking when all of this is going on. You know, well, yeah. what is going to happen when we transfer? Um, you know, what kind of care? What are, what's going to be the plan? Maybe communicating with those doctors at the other, the next hospital in advance with what is the treatment going to look like? Um, you know, it's, I know that goodness, I know that your story is, is hard, 
but I think that you speaking this is really going to be helpful for per, this particular audience, especially. Yeah. And the thing is, is like during that care conference, we set up a plan and that's when I felt comfortable. Like this is what we're doing when we're there. And we set it up with a doctor that was there at the time. And then when we get there, they had a rotation of doctors as well. So the new doctor thought we needed to wait a little bit longer to give her more time. So there I was devastated that I moved my daughter away from, you know, the staff that loved and cared to her to a new hospital. And it took me, you know, 13 minutes to walk between hospital to hospital. I timed myself. I even ran some days because I wanted to get each of their care time. Um, what ended up happening at Children's was the one of the hardest things, which a lot of actually a lot of people don't know my story, which is really weird. The more that I think about it, um, so we get to Children's for Remy, and they still don't want her to do bottle feeds. They still just want to give her lungs some more time. They want to up the steroids for her lungs. Um, and then they want me to talk to genetics, which was fine. Like at this point, I had no idea what was going on. I was under the assumption that she might get a trach to help her breathe. I, you know, I was going to, I was willing to get anything. Um, genetics was awful. If you've ever worked with genetics, um, you have to be a strong person. Did you ever work with genetics? Um, we did a little bit of testing because we did have a rare, a very rare genetic condition. And um, it was like something that's like, hey, this 65% could, is just a total fluke. And then, you know, the other percentage could be a carrier. You could be a carrier. So we actually never personally tested ourselves as parents. We only did genetic testing for the baby to get a final understanding of what she was going through. Um, so I guess yes and no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so genetics wanted to talk because, um, Remy's hips, something were also during this mess that I haven't even touched on is that there was something wrong with Remy's hips. They were out of place and, um, they didn't know what was going on with her hips. And at that point, her hips were like bottom of my concerns because like she wouldn't be able to use her hips if she can't breathe so or eat. So mm -hmm. her physical disabilities that she was showing us was like, I didn't even think about it because I was so worried. I'm like, well, will my daughter be able to breathe? Um, so we were talking to genetics and they wanted to do some genetic testing on her. And me and my husband said, that's fine. And one of the genetic doctors told me that that six, she's 60% sure that it's this one diagnosis. And she, with this diagnosis, there's a probability that she'll never walk, talk, or eat on her own. Wow. That was a day that I think I was the worst mom that I could ever be. As soon as we got that and I agreed for the blood testing, I left the hospital room for about an hour and I went down to like children's grass yard and I screamed and I cried because I didn't know if I could be her mom, like the mom that she needed to be. Because when someone tells you that your child may not walk or talk and they don't know what's going on with her, 
it's just devastating. You don't even know how to, where to begin to think. Um, and for a doctor to be like, you know, we're 60% sure. Like, that's a big percentage. And she, um, this doctor was very nice and very kind. And she said, you know, we'll start with some genetic counseling for you, for you to talk to somebody. And I didn't want it. Uh, I said, I just wanted to get the tests through back. back. Um, and then she also said, well, it could also be this syndrome, which was just as, you know, hard as the syndrome they first thought it was. Um, six weeks went by and we learned that she didn't have either of the syndromes that they tested for. Oh my goodness. So, and also during this time, we had other doctors, you know, trying to prepare me that she might have cerebral palsy. Um, what's, what's hard about this is that we were getting so many misdiagnoses. Yeah. And, and I, I don't even know if they knew who, like what they were doing to me, but I was just at a complete loss. It, just, and just thinking about it angers me and frustrates me. Mm-hmm. The, the power that the doctor's words had over like me and like my family. Absolutely. And I think it's so powerful what you're saying right now. And I hope that if there's somebody listening that I, it's, it's one thing to get back a test, test results and come up and decide with, with a plan, no matter how hard that is to hear with what those test results are. But it's another thing to have people kind of throw out all of these different diagnosis or um, potentials and all of these things and just get you wrapped up mentally, you know, so emotionally in these. And you're not to mention like going through your hormones are just probably crazy at the time. And, you know, it's like, it's one thing to, to have, to get back a diagnosis and have an actual plan and yes, to be hurt or upset or frustrated, but to have to hear these things over and over again and it and then turn out that it's not I mean imagine the stress Allison I can only imagine the stress that you were going through and it to not even be the case yeah um and it was even harder because I both of my girls were at two different hospitals still um so again I was back to like choosing um thankfully I had my mom and she stayed with my daughter Sawyer at UC House because she was easier. And I felt like I needed to be with my daughter Remy at children's 24 seven. Mm. Um, which, what's the craziest part of this whole story of my whole journey in the NICU is that once we got to children's, they never ran a single test that we were told that she would have. Um, they gave her about 55 days of growing. And one day, she got on low flow and never looked back. Wow. Um, my daughter Sawyer was discharged from the NICU at 75 days. Uh, my daughter Remy was discharged at 112 days. And we have no idea what happened. You know, once we first got to children's, it was such a dark and heavy time in my life where I thought I was going to be there forever. To this day, we have no idea what happened, like what turned around. Wow. That's um, incredible. Oh. 
Um, since leaving the NICU, uh, my daughter's had two hip surgeries for hip dysplasia. And my daughter, Sawyer, ended up having a heart surgery the same day that my daughter, Remington, was discharged from the NICU. Um, talk about poor planning, Children's Hospital. <laughs> um, but since then, um, Sawyer is 20 months old right now and doing incredible. She's always done incredible. She's, she's such a fighter. Um, and my daughter, Remington, she is a product of being a preemie. She, every single preemie issue that you could pos possibly think of, she, she has. She has a G-tube right now. Um, she's 20 months. They're twins, obviously. And she is 15 pounds. Mm. Um, and she doesn't walk yet. And it's also because she had two hip surgeries. Um, we're still working with genetics, um, trying to figure out if there is a syndrome. Um, right now, she's being tested for rare dwarfism syndromes. Um, in my heart, I know she's not a dwarf by any means or a small person. I just think that her journey of having a really rough pregnancy with me, having her umbilical cord, she's never been able to get exactly what she needs nutrition-wise. And it's being born so early, she's just going to be a tiny fighter her whole life. But... I don't know. And that's what's crazy is like medicine goes so far, but for me, God takes over after that. Yes. And, Amen, girl. And I, I truly believe that he blessed us with two strong fighters and something just switched and Remy was off oxygen by eight months old. Sawyer was off oxygen at the exact same time. Um, it's just incredible once I think about like going back and thinking of everything that they've been through and all these crazy things that they said that my daughter would need. And at the end of the day, she's not needed any of it. Oh my goodness. What it's, and I know it's, again, it's a, it's a hard story to share, but it is so incredible and amazing. And, and it's beautiful. Like it's a beautiful story hearing these two little fighters and look at the lives that they have ahead of them. Yeah. It's incredible. So if you were to speak to that NICU mom that's sitting there in the chair right now next to the isolate or the crib and just does not want to leave, what is one thing that I know you've touched on actually a few different things throughout this show, but what's one thing that you either wish you would have known or one just tip or advice for that mom there right now? So if you're sitting next to your little girl or boy and you've been there since eight o'clock, seven o'clock, walk out, take five minutes for yourself, breathe, get a cup of coffee, focus on you to make sure that you're doing okay and then go back in. Um, I didn't give myself enough breaks when I was in the NICU and I did struggle with postpartum depression. Um, and nobody told me that it was going to, that I was, that it's okay to take a break. And I think that's one of the things that nobody really talks about is like, you have to focus on yourself as a mom mm -hmm. first. Um, so one of the things is I would just want you to not forget about yourself because it's so easily done when your whole life is consuming of hospital life, mm -hmm. of NICU life. I love that. Yeah. And what is something that you experienced in the hospital that, that 
you know, I know that you've shared a few things that were really hard for you, but mentally, how did you overcome something that was really hard for you? Um, I relied on my circle, um, which was my husband and my mom um, and the friends that did reach out to me. Uh, one of the things I struggle with is I'm a very closed off person. Um, I'm a very emotional person, but when you're going through something that's very confusing for you and you don't know, you know, what's going on, it was really hard for me to share, you know, to people what was actually happening. So I relied heavily on my husband and my mom um, and my primary nurses of, you know, everything I was feeling, which when I think about our story, I'm always so curious of like my husband's point of view. Yeah. Because I'm just like, you know, dad's experienced things too. And my husband was so strong through it all. And I know like one of the things that he would say, because there are very few times I've seen him cry and they were always in the NICU. But, you know, he was so strong for me that like I always try to be strong for him too. I wrote down a lot of things. Um, I kept a journal, um, which I almost thought about bringing it out and like going like day by day. Um, but I'm not ready to open that book yet. Mm. Um, one of the other things that I did is each month that we were there, I wrote a letter to my daughters and I talked to them about the month that they've had, what I felt and, you know, all the things that we would be doing one day. Um, so like one day when I'm ready for it and I'm willing to like read them or have my daughters read them when they're old enough, I think that would be a good thing to do. Oh, that is so amazing. I love that. I've never heard anybody mention that before. And I think that is incredible. Um, gosh, that's so, that's such a great idea. I love that. And I'm going to make sure I put that in the resources of the description of the podcast as a reminder, because that I just, I love that so much. It's, you know, like you said, even being a closed off person, I think, um, you know, pe some people are not comfortable with sharing with the world what's going on. And some people really need that. And I think sometimes this world is so confusing that you're thrown into. And there's so many things happening each and every day that you're trying to keep up with. But whether that's speaking out, like talking to somebody really close to you or having that, that few people that you have your, as your inner circle, or maybe it's writing for you. Maybe it's like the journal, picking up the journal and getting it out. I feel like if you express what you're feeling, what you're going through, kind of like even weighing your options, you know, talking those things out or writing them out talking them out with someone, I feel like for me, I always was like, wow, okay, I've got clarity now. I really yeah. see, you know, if I were going back and forth between a decision and not knowing what decision I should make, and I were talk to talk that out with somebody, for me, it's talking and writing. But if I talk that out with someone, it's like, I almost immediately have clarity. It's like, I will speak words that I, that I never even knew were inside of me or write words that I never knew were inside of me. And I will have so much clarity over that decision or peace of mind. Um, and it can be powerful. And a lot of people just shut down in yeah. these challenging times. And so they don't do those things for themselves. So I love that. And one of the things that I wish I could go back and redo is I do wish I was a little bit more open to people. Uh, the times that I attempted, what you're experiencing a lot of people don't understand it and you have to give them some leeway that they don't understand the NICU because they've never been in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always was told, you know, Oh, she's going to be fine. You know, just give a couple more days. And it was just like, you know, we're on our third blood transfusion. 
like things are not okay. I don't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Like she's not okay. Like, please don't say that. Um, so one of the things that I always want to like tell people is like, you have to give people who don't understand some room to make some error in what they say to you and then go back and educate or mm-hmm. express a little bit um, and know that sometimes they're saying things that comfort them, not necessarily that comforts you. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just, it, it is like a little bit of ignorance and they just don't understand what to say and they want to, they want to know what to say. They want the perfect thing to say to you to help you in that moment, but they just don't. And that's okay. Yeah. You get a mini medical degree being in the NICU. I mean, it's, do. You, it's something that you're your world, you know, nobody else is in your world. And so, but being able to have that close group, like you said, and, you know, educate them a little bit, if they do say something, having empathy for them as well. And I know that that's really hard when you're completely feeling empty, um, but it will be helpful. And the other thing is grace, right? Like just having grace for people knowing that I know we, we were not, a family that was really, really open on social media with our, um, journey. Like we would share kind of little bits here and there and feel like the overwhelming response of love from people. And that was amazing. But so many times we would have comments that were like, well, when are you going home? Yeah. And it's like, if I hear somebody else ask, when are you going home? When you have no freaking clue when you're going home and you don't want to get into a 42 hour conversation about why you're not going home tomorrow. Um, it's frustrating. And at the same time, it's like, okay, Rinda, have some grace, be understanding. They did not just go through two months of medical degree (laughs) education and they have no idea what's going on. And so it's, you know, and I, I know that that can be hard and some people don't want to even have that in their world. So like I said, just go to those two or three that you really trust and, and just completely like word vomit on them and cry and be a blubbering mess if you need to. And then like, whatever, you know, whatever you need. Um, but if you do express that to people and they don't understand, have grace for them too, because ultimately they all want to help and they all, they all do want to try to make you feel better. So Um, can I ask you, did you have like a go-to scripture or mantra or something that you could do, um, in those moments where you were completely overwhelmed? Uh, is there something that you were able to go to that did bring you some peace or calm? Yeah. Um, during my highest pregnancy, I found a quote, um, but her sleep when she wakes, she'll move mountains. And I would probably repeat that to myself so many times that I'm surprised I don't have it as a tattoo right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just always had to breathe and repeat that, that, you know, they're going to move mountains one day. It's just going to take more time. Mm-hmm. I love that. So who is one person that you would like to thank that helped you through the journey? And I know that there's tons, yeah. I know that there's a lot, you know, um, and I know your husband was right along with you during that journey, but Who's just one person that you'd love to just give a shout out for? Like, thank you for being here. Definitely my mom. Um, During the NICU, she left her job for six weeks to be with me um, and to help care because I was so torn between who I needed to provide cares for that whoever I wasn't with, she would always make sure that that other baby, my other daughter, would have someone. Um, 
she also was the one that guided me to like staying at the Ronald McDonald house that helped me figure out, you know, my daughter, uh, Remy qualified for SSI. So she helped me fill out all that paperwork when my mind couldn't focus enough to fill out paperwork. Mm. So I definitely owe so much of my daughter's successes to my mom being there when, you know, I couldn't be at two places at once. Mm -hmm. I love that. So do you believe that this has made you a stronger, better person? Yes, I'm completely different. Uh, the, the person I was before I was pregnant no longer exists. Now I'm a very different person. And what you, what happens is like the NICU high risk, anything, your children change you. Mm -hmm. Um, the mom I thought I was going to be, I'm not that person. And I'm very thankful. I'm not the, the mom I, you know, always thought I was going to be because I'm a much better mom. Um, I'm, I'm patient. I know how to advocate, be an advocate. I am inclusive, which is a huge word for me, um, which I didn't even hear about that word. I, there's, I'm a much better person that I could ever think I could be. That's so awesome. I love hearing that. And um, if there's anything else that you would like to add, maybe that we didn't touch on or just any other tips, last minute words that you'd like to share. If you are having really bad days, you're allowed to have bad days, but it's when those bad days are consuming your life is when you need to make sure you seek help. Um, I was having so many rough days when we were at Children's Hospital. One of the doctors that I really appreciate pulled me aside and gave me a number um, to see a doctor that she went to um, when she was struggling with postpartum depression. And I actually followed through because my postpartum depression was con consuming my life so much that I was in a very dark spot. A lot of people don't know that um, because I one of the things I do when I'm very anxious or frustrated or sad is I put on this brave face because I don't want people to ask me because I don't know how to respond to it. But if you're having multiple dad, bad days and you're thinking terrible things, like you need to go and get professional help and it will save, you know, you deserve to be healthy and happy as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that self-awareness, you know, to know that you need something is powerful and it's okay. Like you need to know that it's okay um, to ask for help or to talk to help uh, and, and seek what you need. It's, it's, it's like we look so much at that little baby and think that the only thing that we can do is be by their side and help make decisions. And really like you need to look at how are you taking care of yourself? Yeah. Because you mentally have to be on top of your game to remember all the things that they said at CARES, to remember what the game plan is. And then when something puts you on your toes and you have to shift gears, you have to be ready for those things. The best thing that you can do for your baby is take care of yourself mentally and physically, you know, the best that you possibly can. So I love that so much. Allison, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you spending it with us. Um, the last thing, actually, I would like to ask you, if you've got any, you know, resources or blogs or a book you read, um, feel free to mention them, or you can always send them to me and we can put them in the resources of the podcast. Um, but if there's anything else that you can think of that moms or parents could, could use when they're in that moment to help them get through. 
Um, well, if you're at UC Health in Denver, Love for, Love for Lily is a great resource. Um, I utilize that parent group a lot. It's a support group that meets on Tuesdays. They bring donuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So. Um, so, okay, Love for Lily. So it, I'm sure there's going to be people in other um, yeah. hospitals listening. So basically it's a, just a support group that they meet at the hospital, correct? Correct. So maybe there's something like that in the hospital that you're in. Yeah. If you are, um, just ask, just ask yeah. for resources that are available. Um, I know that that's a separate, so that's a nonprofit that is separate from the hospital, but I know that they do utilize the hospital. So ask for those things for resources. Um, there's, uh, I know that there are many resources for uh, parent groups that, you know, maybe it's twin preemies that um, they meet maybe once a year and do all of these like little picnics in the parks and stuff like this. So there are so many things out there that, you know, again, you're being thrown into a world that you've never been in before. It's a complete tornado and you're trying to make decisions like super fast and understand what the doctors are talking about. So I get that. But when you do have some time to breathe, um, ask for some resources that can help you get through this journey. So Allison, thank you again. We will put that in the resources of the podcast. So check that. Um, and thank you for your time to all of our NICU family. Just know that we're always thinking about you guys and you are amazing parents. Please do not ever forget that you are doing your absolute best in this moment and this too shall pass. So thank you for listening with us today. We look forward to our next podcast interview. And if you have any comments or suggestions, or if there's a chip tip that you heard today that you would love to give us some feedback on, please go over to our social media pages and share that with us because we just love to hear how this is being an inspiration to our NICU family. Thank you guys. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast with anyone who you think may enjoy it. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Presley's Purpose, as well as our website, presleyspurpose.com. 